I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Martin Cohen, author of I Think, Therefore I Eat, The World's Greatest Minds Tackle the Food Question. We spend so much time and money on food, but do we really spend enough thought on food? Do we have the proper tools to be skeptical of the latest diet fad? Do we challenge why the FDA makes the decisions it does? Do we ever say there must be something wrong with cheese that has an expiration date eight months from now? In his new book, I Think, Therefore I Eat, The World's Greatest Minds Tackle the Food Question, best-selling philosophy writer Martin Cohen uses examples from the great philosophers of the past not to tell us what to eat, but how to think about what we eat. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Martin. Thanks, Catherine. That's a very good summary. Very good. <laughs> good. Well, this is the first question. Um your book is a exhortation to think about what we eat and what we put into our bodies. Why is that so important? Um, well, I think, when, look, I go back to school, if you like, because I, I've done a bit of teaching with children. And I've also done college teaching, but I've done teaching with very small children. And one of the things that you always told with small children is relate everything back to food. Um, and that's because underneath it all, we are we are animals and we have very simple requirements and food is actually very basic, a primitive thing we have to have right. Um, and in a way, we are our whole civilization is de- des- described by our food habits and that view um, it's actually there in one of the ancient philosophy texts where I came across it many years ago. In Plato, he says in his Republic, which is perhaps the most famous philosophy book of them all, he says very clearly, he says, it's food that is determining our societies and our cultures and our philosophy. So food makes, in a way, it's a very natural choice to make it the base of any theory that you've got of the world. Martin, so how does it do that? I mean, if it's determining our societies and the culture and the way we live, what we eat, how we eat, mm. and obviously you're saying we have to think about it, but how does it do that? How is it impacting us? How does it impact our society? Give us well, an example. Yeah. For, for example, um, if if you think of people as uh, in family-sized bands roaming the countryside gathering fruit and nuts, um, and for many, many countless millennia that is how people would have lived maybe a bit of fishing but um, basically hunting uh, not not so much hunting actually mostly gathering food but then there's this huge change which another great philosopher that Jean-Jacques Rousseau points out there's a huge change at some point people say actually it'd be a lot easier if we planted some of these crops that we like so much and as soon as people start planting crops, they have a sort of interest in the crop. And then they start to say, those are my crops, keep off them. Um, <laughs> and you, you end up with this property society. Um, <clears throat> so that it's an extraordinary thing, but um, the whole, the whole uh, interrelationship of society shifts once you have people who say, this is my land and enclose it. So, in other words, so if we're farming our own land and we enclose it, and that determines whether we live in towns or cities or, I guess, whether we are in gathering in nations, uh, that's very different than when we're traveling all over trying to gather our food. So we, Well, I I don't think you could have a very big 
community if you didn't have farming. Um, so they, they now know, I think it's only recently um, archaeologists and anthropologists have found that there were very substantial large settlements in places like North America and South America, um, running to, uh, I think, tens of thousands of people, sophisticated towns. And the, these towns must have been supported by food coming in because you can't do it. You can't have a big um, conglomeration without that kind of network, without that sophistication. Now we're talking about, you've described some of the, obviously the Plato, the philosophers and how they thought or think how they thought about food. Um, you also talk about Thoreau, that's more of a present day philosopher. Um, what was his take on food, how we should think about food and what we eat? Well, he, he's, a, he's a very different kind of philosopher from all the others. And in a way, he's almost like a, the hippie philosopher. Um, and his, he, he had quite a short and in a way quite a tragic life. But in another way, it's a very beautiful life. And he sort of dropped out, at least for a couple of years, slightly exaggerated the extent to which he dropped out. But for a couple of years, he lived very simply, growing um, mostly green beans. Um, and he lived in a, a wooden cabin in Massachusetts. And he, he describes in his journal, which is kind of diary, the simple pleasures that he got from this reconnection with nature. Now, to some extent, it's not that natural what he did because he had a farm and he planted crops. But nonetheless, it's a great deal more natural than what the rest of us are doing when we, we tend to just buy stuff in a shop. Or, so he, he describes how he, he, he lost the interest in exotic foods and he preferred to have ones that he'd grown and nourished and observed himself. And it was a direct contact with nature that he, he valued so much. And that, for some many good reasons, he's considered the first true environmentalist. One of the problems is, I think, there it's you know the, growing your own food and then going to the grocery store. Perhaps they're at either ends of the spectrum, but all of us can't necessarily grow our own is grow our own food, simple foods. So, what do we do? I mean, if we're thinking yeah. about the food we eat and how it affects us and our health and all of those kinds of things, how how can we? How do we sort of ingest the best food that we can for yeah. our health, for our bodies? We're, we're, we're all stuck on a continuum, really, aren't we? I mean, I, I think you, Thoreau, to some extent, was a bit, of a, a bit extreme. And his diet became very extreme because it only consisted of a few crops. <laughs> he bought things in as well, obviously. But he ate an awful lot of the same stuff. And most of us would get very bored doing this. And I'm, I'm actually talking to you from France. And in France, they do have a big tradition of, of growing your own things. It's enormous number of people have a little space, which they call their potager, and they will grow tomatoes and beans and, uh, uh, you know, uh, quite a range of vegetables on it. And it is a national tradition to have that contact, um, much more than, than I know from the UK. Um, but... The thing is that at the, the bottom line is that you only do a certain amount like that. And the, the important thing is that you should feel that you have done something authentic 
it doesn't really need to be very ambitious. It could be just a window box. You could have herbs, for example, growing in the window box. You could have an apple tree in your garden. Um, but to lose all contact with nature is is something um, that is 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 like losing your way. And as long as as long as we um, can, can maintain a sense of nature, then I think this is a, this is our route forward. It makes sense of our place it, on, on Earth. It's a, it is, as I say, it's something so fundamental. Um, if you look at it the other way around, <clears throat> and, and you say what well, you're only interested in sophisticated foods, and that, interestingly enough, is a philosophical perspective put by another philosopher, Sartre, who said that modernity required you to reject all this homegrown stuff and gardens and dirty fingers and soil, and you wanted to get everything highly processed. And, and, and as you may know, there is, a, there is a whole mindset like this. People talk about having food that's been carefully vitamin uh, enhanced, which you get in tubes, you know, like astronauts do on the space station. Um, and, and there is a, an alternative view that modernity requires us to head off uh, in this way. Um, uh, in fact, we're talking now about m making artificial meat from chemicals, and that in itself is a kind of attempt to take control of our destinies as a race uh, and to, to, to move it into the next millennia. It seems to me, and I want to go back to the the Thoreau, uh, as you you know, with his yeah. growing his own vegetables, and you're saying, well, we can do things they do in France, uh, maybe have small gardens or 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 at least have an herb box uh, on your window. Um, one of the criticisms or critiques, I guess, is if you have a garden and you're always eating the food from that same garden, and we have polluted cities, pollu and, uh, there's pollution in the country, there's pollution in the soil, you're always eating from the same polluted garden, whereas if you ate food from a variety of gardens and a variety of farms, that might be a healthier situation. Isn't that something to think about? Yeah, I, I, I'm sure that there's, there's not much to be said for... Um, producing your own food you'll only ever manage to produce a very small range even if you manage to do it in a very organic way um, what you really want is to uh, to have good food for example from um, a convenient local market might be good and I say a market rather than a shop because the thing about shops modern shops is that they often have products which are highly processed and even if they're selling vegetables, those vegetables are often three months old by the time they're actually sold. So the, the, the best thing for the healthiest food is probably someone else's shop, and they're a specialist, and they have a network. Um, but nonetheless, it, it's the authenticity of, of your own things that um, is, I think, it is important and um, does reconnect you to something in our, in our most primitive underlying psyches. So that another another aspect of this taking it's taking control really that I'm talking about. Um, if if you if you can grow some food, that's great. Or if you go to a store, um, a farmer's market, and you're selecting stuff and talking to the person who grew it, that's also very good. But when you 
just buy stuff that's been highly processed and you don't know what's in it. You don't know what whether there's antifreeze added, which is often is added to things like bread now, most ridiculous things and sort of strange chemicals. You, you've lost control and you've lost information. So it's not really about growing at all. It's, it's, a, it's about knowing what's going on, I think, and to have a sense of what's going on. Well, in your book, you talk about the lies the food industry tells because they just want to sell their products. So we need to be somewhat, We have to, as you say, we have to think about the food we eat and where it comes from and how it's made. So a healthy dose of <clears throat> skepticism is important. But how do we get the know we're getting the right information? You know, you look on the back of uh, the packaging and there might be 18 ingredients that yeah. you don't even understand what they are. You can't stand. I mean, that's, you could sit no, there. That's, tr- yeah, that's uh, what I mean. That's really one of the things that got me going on this whole project. And that is this this language that food is presented in. And you know, as you say, you look on the ingredients list. A, it's written too small. It's written in tiny, tiny letters. It's not intended to be read. It's a kind of pretense that people are being informed. And that the actual information is, is, it might be in E numbers. Who knows what the E numbers mean? Or there would be otherwise chemicals. And again, it's very hard to understand ingredients. The, behind that is why are there so many ingredients? For, for example, bread, which I write a, uh, an introductory chapter on, because it's a great story, bread, because... And again, it's something that you can make yourself if you've got the time and you've got the income. I don't make my own bread, but if you do, I think it's very therapeutic and the psychological value in it. Um, modern bread is something like 20 ingredients. Traditional bread is, is just flour, water and yeast and a pinch of salt, four ingredients. So what are those 20 ingredients? And they're very odd things. They're things like calcium carbonate, which is also known as plaster of Paris. What is that doing in bread? We we are not told what it's doing in there, and we're not told really what the effects are. So in my book, I, I offer you um, a sort of list, a very simple list of three things, which is when you look at food and you look at ingredients, you want to have three things in mind. One is that the detail does matter, it may be a tiny little addition in the food, but it could be affecting you, could be affecting your digestion, could be affecting um, your, 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 um, your sense of yourself. You know, it can have psychological effects, some of these additives. Um, the other one is everything connects so that this principle is that if, if you think um, that, for example, um, you drop certain things from your diet. Perhaps you're on a diet and you, you say, I'm going to cut out uh, fat, for example. Unfortunately, fat is essential to our, our nervous system, to our brains. And you can actually damage, it's quite remarkable, you can actually damage your whole um, nervous system and the operation of your brain in about 48 hours if you have too strict a diet. Particularly these fasts can be dangerous. Um, and the, the third principle that I have, which connects to that, is don't mess with the crystal vase, which means that we should be very careful when we, uh, when we do things with our food because our bodies have adapted to things, both as individuals in our lifetimes, but also uh, over thousands of years. And if we make radical changes, perhaps because we've read stuff on the you know, <laughs> 
diet guru has told us to do something, we, we can disturb the balance of our bodies very, very easily. Do you think one of the things that we should be, I mean, as I'm listening to you, we tend to, as a culture, you're right, this, uh, a certain diet, that whether it's the, and some of them are really good, I think, the like Mediterranean diet, I don't know, the paleo diet, there are all kinds of diets that maybe as we should just listen to our bodies more, talk about actually being informed and thinking about what we eat. If you eat something and you don't feel well, that says something. Even if the food industry or the supermarkets or whomever is telling you this is good for you, if you don't feel well, then your body is telling you something about the food that you eat and you need to listen to that. Yeah, I, well, I, I do think that, um, Catherine. And, and I also think it could be quite sophisticated that, that there are... Um, there are these microbes that are part of our body. And they are actually the majority part of our body, which is an extraordinary fact, which I came across in researching the book, that if you take all the cells in the human body, there are more microbes than there are human cells. That means we are walking around and we're, only, we're actually a sort of alien conglomeration of beings and only a little bit a human being. Um, but those microbes have become integrated into us and they can control things and they can send signals and that's why people get food cravings, strange ones. Um, and to some extent we always think being driven by your, like your stomach makes you want sugar, you see, this is often considered a dreadful thing, but it's also a good thing because your, your, your body has evolved and it, it, it knows what it wants and it can be very subtle. You can suddenly get an urge to eat, for example, I don't know, it might be lemon, you might suddenly say, I must have some lemon, I want lemon juice, or whatever it is. It, it can be that your body knows better than you what is good for you, I, I think. And I, I, I think there's a bit too much, um, what's the phrase for it, where, where everything's done at a high cerebral level, and there's a disparaging of these instincts. So it's very cerebral, you're saying. We do, yeah, we don't, go, we don't go with our gut, actually. Exactly, exactly. We, yeah. and, and our gut is actually... The, the odd thing is that our gut is actually not one human thing, but a collection of alien organisms. So that in a sense, and they know, the researchers have found as well, that there are now the gut microbes have a direct influence on the, our brains as well, so that they can actually send triggers to the brain and make us perceive things differently. But that sounds, because of the way we think, that sounds bad, but it's not bad. The fact is that we are so complicated and there is this balance of interests in the body. And when we, with our, our cerebral sides, start to trample on our microbes and say, well, I, I'm not going to have any salt, I'm not going to have any sugar, um, perhaps we're actually doing things which are against our own health, healthy interests and we should be careful about these dogmas. So you talk about... Maybe we should, and it was a, a food, uh, I guess a food critic, who said uh, maybe we sh instead of listening to all of these scientists and, and, and diet people, just uh, what would grandma have said? What, what, she, what did she eat? I mean, before, before actually all these chemicals and scientific stuff was added to our food, um, yes. what did our, yeah, what did our grandparents, what were they eating? That's the Michael Pollan's line isn't it and mm. I, I do think it's right it, it's a, he's he warns he, he he describes it quite eloquently 
how there are now very sophisticated laboratories and they work out how to put a certain amount of fat in the food, a certain amount of salt, a certain amount of, of, of sugar, whatever. And they manipulate these these connections that we were talking about, you know, where, where the brain is responds to a signal from your stomach. Um, and so they they tamper with the foods that we're eating to send us signals and to make the food irresistible. And, of course, that is very sinister. Michael Pollan is absolutely right about that. But at, this, at the same time, um, he's, he's also right to say that there is an, another level of common sense, which grandma would be the representative of, um, and that over the years, food advice has been so up and down and has been so fought over that the common sense has actually test stood the test of time rather better than the cutting edge stuff. Yeah. And the cutting edge stuff changes. What's cutting edge today, five years, in, you know, two years from now, five years from now, science says, no, we were wrong. You can eat this or you can't eat that. And and so they change, I mean, in the future. And what you were supposed to eat last year or two years ago is just a myth. And it, it all changes. According, I think so. Yeah. Also it's a sort of fashion, isn't it? And there's a lot of money in fashions. So that you get food fashions. That means a lot of people are off buying the new product that is supposedly healthy. But then uh, five years on, they, they can make more money by just getting everyone to switch products. And I, I'm not very impressed with scientists because, in a way, scientists are people who are politically naive. And I think they're easily used. And we saw, we saw that, and I describe it in the, in the book, in fact. Uh, we saw that in America with this thing about fat causes heart disease, whereas it, there never was any evidence that fat caused heart disease. But everyone including my, my relatives, have been on these fat-free diets, you know, um, you must eat margarine and not butter sort of diets. And also, there was, and which is actually related to this, is the same thing, the whole, and as I understand it, and I guess I have to, the um, egg industry was virtually 30 or 40 years to go, not destroyed, but they did research and said, you know, if you have high cholesterol is associated with eating eggs, don't eat eggs, eat cereal. But actually the cereal companies are the ones who paid for the research and the investigation. So you have to know who's doing the research. I think that's another thing if you're going to think about the food you eat and what their motives are. So for a long time, doctors would say, don't eat eggs because you're going to get high cholesterol from eating eggs and that's really not the case that's not what they say now i mean that's that's all changed in the past 30 that's, years that's right yeah. that's right and it, it's it sort of hangs on you know the scientists say it um and the media amplify it and then the scientists back down or some other group of scientists wins the argument but the story lingers there for decades long after the evidence disappeared and i still know people who are who are very careful about eggs because they say oh well, eggs that's high cholesterol you know it's, <laughs> it, it, it's quite a it's quite a, um, sinister in a way how science is co-opted like this and there's another another group who are easily co-opted who, who I think get let off too often and that's greens because there's a thing a phenomenon called greenwashing um, and so you get people doing things like uh, soya is, is an example of this. They'll, they'll go off, have any product like soya milk and think it's somehow a, a, an environmentally friendly, a healthy product, even as in soya plantations are the 
probably the biggest culprit worldwide for destruction of the environment. That I didn't know. That that's a new. I mean, that is true because that's all I hear. Very very. You know, eat soy milk. That's good for you. That's better than eating cows or drinking cows milk. But that's not true. Um, we have a and couple. And soy, soy has all these other, um, <laughs> all, all these other effects, which are very uh, controversial, actually. And I had a bit of trouble when I wrote the book, having to argue it with the editors about uh, why I was criticising soy. But I went and checked. They, they, they did a good job. They made me go and check more carefully. Um, soy is associated with quite a lot of health issues. It's not absolutely black and white at all, but nonetheless. It's not a product that we need to be eating a lot of, yet it is being pushed on us. So in many things, you, you get a packet of instant, um, I don't know, lasagna from a supermarket. It's probably got a soya component in it, you see. Um, so you get soya oil in, in almost everything, it seems. And you don't actually want it because it has definitely got side effects. It might be particularly for women, it's got side effects, I understand. It can in- interfere with the, the hormonal balance. So th- we have a couple minutes left, uh, Martin. So summing all this up, we have to think about what we eat. We have to read your book, which is, I think, therefore, I eat the world's greatest minds, tackle the food question, My, Martin Cohen. Sum it up for us. If we're thinking about what we eat, three things that we really need to think about besides reading your book. Yeah. Or in so, addition to reading your book. As I say... I think the three things are you should you should accept in food detail matters, and in a way we get bored with details, but with food it matters. And the second one is that you should understand that what you're doing, if you if you're eating um, too little vegetables, that will have an effect on you. If you're eating too many vegetables, will have an effect on you. Uh, I, I knew someone. <laughs> deviate slightly i knew someone who had very healthy very healthy worked out in the gym and so on and so forth um, and they ate a lot of vegetables they had gone orange they had literally gone orange and that was because they just ate far too much carotene um which in, in it's in, in limited amount carotene is, is positive but anyway it was a very strange thing they had completely orange skin um the, the third point though is which connects to that is and I mentioned it before, is don't mess. And so I, I think there's a lot of diet books which tell you a strong line. My one doesn't give you a strong line. People may object to that. It, it Instead, it gives you a lot of information and says to you, now think about what you're doing. That's a weaker message. But the reason is that there's a bigger danger from following uh, advice, which is wrong, um, and following it without really understanding it or thinking it through or thinking about it from your own personal case, because everyone's case is slightly different. We'll have to end on that one. Martin Cohen, thanks so much for being on the show today. Lots of good information. And obviously, I think, therefore, I eat your book. Uh, You can go online, I assume, buy it at bookstores everywhere and Amazon.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Joining me this morning is Pratima Glockman. Her new book is Nevertheless, She Persisted, True Stories of Women Leaders in Tech. At a time when diversity is being championed from boardrooms down to managerial ranks, the high-tech industry is still rife with gender bias. To succeed in high-tech, women need to possess not only outstanding technical and leadership abilities, but also the will to overcome adversity. In her book, Pratima Gluckman tells the stories of 19 women who overcame formidable odds to succeed in a male-dominated culture. And Ms. Gluckman is an engineer. The stories are a testament to persistence, whether undergoing a grueling education or going back to ask for a promotion after being rejected. Each story brings insight into career trajectories and highlights the importance of speaking up for oneself and having faith in one's accomplishments. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Pratima. Thank you, Catherine. Well, this is kind of disheartening in a way, but uh, you're, you do have a positive attitude. We are, I guess, going forward, but in the field of high tech and engineering, we're still sort of maybe back in the, I don't know if we're back in the Middle Ages, but we still have this kind of uh, very gen- we, gender bias, I guess, is a fact of life. We have to accept it. So in accepting it, what can we do about it? How do we overcome it? What do, how can women overcome this gender bias in, in, in these companies, these high-tech companies? And what are the issues? A lot of the issues right now is based on unconscious bias. And it's a bias that we're not really aware of. And that's that's the root cause of this problem. <clears throat> and when you shine a light on that bias, I think people then say, oh, you know, I have this bias, and then they can change their behaviors accordingly. But it's just shining that light. How do you shine that light on that bias as it's happening is something that, you know, needs a lot of education. Okay, and I was hoping it edu- needs with this book. I'm sorry, Catherine. No, I was something? just going to say with your book, your this book is going to help educate the help educate every I get the public, all of us. Because you're right, you have to know what the problem is if we're going to kind of if we're going to resolve it. So obviously, that's why you wrote the book. 
So let's shine a light on the problem. Let's go down, like very specifically, what is what is what are the parts of the problem? What what are the issues? So we can start first with just the hiring pipeline. A lot of people say it's a pipeline problem. There are not many women in the pipeline, so we can't hire women. It isn't very true. Isn't actually I won't even say very true. It's actually not true. Because if you go to the Grace Hopper celebrations today, I don't know if you've heard of the Grace Hopper celebrations, and I featured Telly Whitney, who is the co-founder of the Grace Hopper celebrations. And you have over 20,000 attendees to this conference, and the majority of them are women. If men go to these conferences, if tech, if tech companies send their male executives to these conferences, they're going to realize that there are tons and tons of women who are getting STEM degrees, but they're not, it's, they're not um, translating into jobs in tech. But even if they do, one of the biggest problems is how women leave tech. So 57% of women in their careers leave tech, and 37% of women leave uh, tech in their first year. And what happens is once you get past that hurdle of the hiring problem and you hire these women, they don't create environments where women can thrive. And so what, what, what is an environment where women can thrive? First thing is work-life balance. If you look at just the situation right now, women are the primary uh, caregivers of the house, and that's changing. Uh, if you take my example, my personal example, my husband's a stay-at-home dad. I go to work. And so there's a lot, of, a lot of families who are getting to that place. But the majority of women do it all. I actually can't do it all. I can't imagine how women do it all because I can just work and my husband takes care of the, you know, he takes care of the house and he, he does so much, so much more than I do for the house. And I can't imagine doing both. But there are tons and tons of women who have to do both. And because we can't do it all, something it um, has to take a back seat. And most times it's women's careers. So that's one problem. The second problem is in the workplace. But, but on that problem is, I want to go back to that problem. That may be a problem, but also I think isn't the part of uh, the caveat to that is that if women have that issue and they are good workers in the company, companies don't do anything to accommodate them. The woman who's trying to do both, like the, the maternity leave, uh, those kinds of things, they make no exactly. exception. So they have to leave. It's, it, you know, th- there is a problem, but it can be resolved if companies address the issue or the problem. Exactly. And in the book, uh, there's a woman called Alina Percival. She's the CEO of uh, Women Who Code. She actually talked about something that I didn't quite think about myself. She talked about paternity leave, the importance of paternity leave. And she also talks about how bad habits start when a woman um, has a child, when a family has a child. What happens is when, you know, when, when women you know, go into tech, they get married, they have kids, the first child, they stay home and they do the brunt of the work and you know, the spouse has to, you know, get one week of paternity leave and they can't, um, you know, really help uh, the family. And that sets bad habits in the sense that that kind of starts this uh, cycle of women just feeling overwhelmed and saying, okay, I have to do entire housework, I have to take care of the child, and uh, then their career takes a step back. But today in tech, with just Mark Zuckerberg taking, you know, a month or two months off for paternity leave, that sets such a strong example 
And VMware, the company I work for, has 18 weeks of paternity leave, which is awesome. And I encourage, you know, the men on my team to take that paternity leave because it is so important to support their spouse. Pratima, um, don't they do so, better in Europe than they do here in the United States? Uh, I, I know young people who have babies, particularly uh, this I'm thinking about Switzerland, they do have paternity leaves, and their paternity leaves are much longer than just one week, which is really not that helpful. And so it seems that there are other countries that we can look towards that do better than uh-huh. we do at giving fathers maternity leave. Paternity. Yeah, I heard in France, and you know, uh, I, this is just hearsay, I haven't done much research on that. But apparently in France, they have the state actually send somebody home to help um, new mothers. Um, So they get a lot of help from the government. You know, they pay higher taxes and all that stuff. Um, So work-life balance is one thing. So it's, you know, we keep saying it's a hiring problem, but we really have to look at it very hard and really say, is this really a hiring problem? And the second thing we have to do is we have to create these environments where women can thrive, which is you know, work-life balance, paternity leaves, all these, all this good stuff. I think there's a lot that companies can do in that regard. The second thing, and which is very important, uh, which was very important for me personally, is the role of a sponsor. And uh, Telly Whitney in the book, she talks about this. She says, women are over-mentored and under-sponsored. And there's some truth to that. Because what happens is women tend to seek out more mentors than they seek out sponsors. And who are sponsors? Um, sponsors are the ones who talk about you and advocate, uh, advocate for you within the company. Mentors just talk to you. You know, they'll go out for a coffee, they'll give you advice, or they'll listen to you, help you solve a problem. But sponsors are the ones who are in this chain of command who can give you strategic projects. They're the ones who can promote you. They're the ones who have authority in the company to help you climb that ladder. And women have very few sponsors. When I look Is that at my because they don't myself, seek out the sponsors? They're afraid to? They're afraid to speak up? And, 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 and when they get in, when they are hired by a company, they really hone in on trying to find a sponsor because the sponsor is not going to necessarily come to you? Yeah, they don't necessarily come to you. You have to seek them out. And how do you seek them out? First is you get... Uh, organizationally savvy. You you know, once you go into an organization, you find out, okay, who are the key, key players? Uh, second thing is visibility. You have to be visible. You can't be just sitting in a cube or an office by yourself, working away, doing all this hard work, and not really talking about it or showcasing it. Uh, you know, sitting in meetings, and that's what, you know, Sheryl Sandberg talks about lean in. She says, you know, how women should lean in, you know, take the seat at the table. And I agree with her on that, you know, that you have to at least lean in uh, in the sense that sit at the table. Don't sit uh, at the periphery of the room, right? Like people, sometimes we end up sitting at the, at the corners of the room. We don't speak up. We're not assertive. We don't sound confident sometimes. And so those are things that can go against you in basically finding a sponsor or someone who can say, oh, that person has potential. Um, so that's one thing. But then there's also this unconscious bias, and I'll tell you a story. And this has come up repeatedly, and I don't know what it is, but in meetings, when a woman says something, uh, people just don't uh, glom onto that, don't catch onto that. But 10 minutes later, the man says the same thing, then they're just all on top of it, and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, Joe said this, or Tom said this, but Amy just said that 10 minutes ago. And 
um, Susan Rice talks about this and she calls it amplification. So what happened was the same thing happened with her during the Obama administration where they would be sitting in meetings with Obama and, you know, the women would say something, the men would say exactly the same thing and Obama would glom on to what the men were saying. <laughs> so the women went off and said, you know what, let's try, try to amplify our voices. So when they would come into these meetings and, and something like that would happen, they would say, hey, you know what, Susan just said that 10 minutes ago. And I think another piece to that, I want to add to that, because I think what's, and I see this in politics all the time, with women in politics, whether they're even senators, even senators, let's start with that. And it's not just that people don't listen to women, women's voices and, and are sometimes really need to be worked on. It's very difficult. Men's voices, even if they don't have that much to say, are much more compelling. Just the voice themselves, I'm talking about the voice quality. And I think any woman that is going to be in the boardroom or be in politics or be in any position of power really has to work on her voice. And I think women don't do that. I think that is really critical so that when she's saying something, People will listen to you. It's not just what you're saying, but it's really how you say it and the tone of your voice and how strong your voice is. Um, and I think that very often that's overlooked. Yes, I agree with that. But why does a woman have to work that hard? Why does a woman have to go take voice classes and really work on how she says, what she says, and the quality and the tone of her voice? I, this is know, a problem. I, I agree. She shouldn't put, have to do that. She shouldn't have to. But that's kind of the reality. It's it's sort of <laughs> like if you are, and I'll give you an example, the taller you are, people listen to you, male or female, right? I mean, the pre- most presidents are very t- have, in the past have always been very tall men. I'm a very short w- woman. I'm five feet tall. That's just the way I am. I have a lot to say, but I know I have to work harder when I go into a room male with mm-hmm. male or females just because I'm short. And and so it's, I, you know, it's too bad that it is that way, but it is that way. So I need to address it. That's all I'm saying. Yes, I agree with you. Why should women have to work on their voices? But I think they do if they want to be in positions of power. I, I agree to that. <laughs> but I also want to raise this point of let's not put the entire burden on the woman. Uh, let's have men in the room try to uh, get these women's voices out. In, in the book, I talk about Pam Koska. She says how her mentor helped her find a voice. He would have this hand signal for her in meetings when he wanted her to speak up. Um, and she was very afraid. She was a you know new college grad, and she always said, what do I have to offer to this table? And he said, if you're thinking about a question, I'm sure others are thinking about the same question, so speak up. What I've noticed in my job, or just you know personally for me in my career, is I'm a confident, assertive woman. I will speak up. But even when I'm speaking up in the meeting, I am invisible. And that is, again, that bias. No one really wants to listen, so I have to fight for it. So I'd have to say, hey, guys, I'm trying to make a point here, and I have to jump in and do that. Uh, So constantly calling people out in meetings. And I do that with other members on the team, male or female. There are a lot of men who you know, won't speak up or not confident enough. And when they're speaking up, the other people in the room are shutting them down. And I step in as a leader. I step in and say, hey, I think Matt has a point and he wants to say something. Have him speak up. Like, let him get, I kind of give him some space to speak. And that's another thing is leaders have to be really aware 
And it's kind of out of the box leadership. I've I've written about it, uh, not in the book, but it, you know, another blog article. But out of the box leadership, where leaders have to become almost hyper aware in in the environment we're in today, is becoming hyper aware. Not taking it to an extreme, but just being aware and saying, "Hey, what is going on going on within my team, within my organization? What can I do to fix this problem?" But these leaders have to also be aware that diversity brings a lot to the table. Like, they have to be convinced that this is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. I think that's and a good that, point. And that, again, needs a lot of education. Uh, yeah, a lot of education. So you, you mentioned and you talk about in the book the imposter syndrome. That's something that women mm-hmm. suffer from. What is the imposter syndrome? It's called a fraud syndrome. It's, it's a syndrome where you feel... Like you don't know enough, you'll get caught, someone will find you out, and uh, everyone feels imposter syndrome. It's just not women. Men feel imposter syndrome, too. When I started research on this and I started talking about it and I was doing the interviews with the women in the book, that was one of the questions I had, and I was very naive when I went into this process because I probably had imposter syndrome. I didn't quite... Uh, call. I didn't quite think it was that. I just thought I wasn't good enough. <laughs> I period. I just thought I have big gaps in my knowledge. I just I don't think I'm good enough. And I went about my life feeling that way. But when I spoke to these women, some for some reason I thought they were past imposter syndrome. But everyone in the book, a majority of them said, "Hell yeah, I have the imposter syndrome." Yeah, I think women have and, difficulty, uh, as you say, internalizing their accomplishments, and that's the fear. We we don't we 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 just we don't internalize our accomplishments. Men seem not to have difficulty to do that, even if they haven't accomplished have not accomplished a lot. They'll still internalize what they think are their accomplishments. Um, I want to go on also to the glass cliff, that was a very which uh-huh. is another um, issue that you talk about. What is the glass cliff? So, you know, the glass, the, the concept of glass, uh, glass cliff came about with, you know, just women breaking a glass ceiling, but then facing the glass cliff, which basically means that you can have, you know, organizations that are running into trouble. And what they'll do is they'll say, hey, let's go hire a woman to fix the problems. And then they'll hire the woman. And the woman now is faced with a very tough problem. And there's so much at risk for this person because if she fails it's going to impact her future prospects. If she succeeds, they're just going to be like, oh, you know, we picked the right person, she succeeded. But if she fails, then it's like, oh, too bad, it's a woman. And women face this all the time. So if you look at Marissa Mayer, she ran into a glass cliff problem with Yahoo. When she came in, things were terrible. And she tried to turn it around. Yes, she made some mistakes. Um, I remember this one article which said, oh, she, you know, even though she screwed up and she did such a bad job with Yahoo, she had a golden parachute. You know, she, she, she got some money to exit from Yahoo. But it turns out that there were many more men who had similar uh, glass cliff kind of situations that, you know, ended up having, uh, exiting with higher, with lots more money than she did. And so the article was, again, pointing out to just the bias we have. And so that's kind of the glass cliff problem where they just get women to come in, try to fix something. Um, and if she fixes it, great. Yes, we did a great job appointing her. But if she, does, she didn't, then, oh, you know, there you go. You know, we, a woman, she couldn't fix it. 
Um, and a lot of women in the book actually didn't face the glass cliff problem. And I thought about it, and I said, why is that that the women didn't face, didn't face the glass cliff, cliff problem? But a majority of women basically said, hey, you know what? If I break one glass ceiling, another one appears. It's not like there's one end-all and be-all glass ceiling that once you break it, you're not going to have any more glass ceilings. So at every level you have a glass ceiling, you break it, you get to the next level, you break that glass ceiling. And even if you get to the CEO level, you have to break glass ceilings. And so I think we're so busy breaking these glass ceilings that we never get to the glass cliff. That's my theory. I haven't tested it out, but just uh, listening to these women's stories and just their examples and talking to a lot of women after the book's been published, I've been, you know, basically come up with this theory that we're busy breaking glass ceilings, but so we, we're never reaching the glass cliff. Mm-hmm. That, that's an interesting theory, and it does, uh, given all you've been talking about, it does, it makes a lot of sense. Um, another issue that is that comes up is branding. Branding. It's important for women uh-huh. to manage their reputations and, and communicate their achievements, uh, which they don't seem to do. And uh, men don't seem to have too much difficulty with that. Um, so how, how, well, how can we overcome that? What do we do? Brand is important. I think a man or a woman, brand is important. It's basically what people uh, say about you when you leave the room. But it's much more critical for women to be perceived a certain way. And, uh, and being perceived a certain way becomes a double-bind problem. For instance, you, if you're too nice and too collaborative, then you're not effective. But if you are assertive and confident and effective, then you're aggressive and ambitious, which again says, oh, if you're an ambitious woman, that's a bad thing. And these are stereotypes that exist in society. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's programmed in our subconscious. Women are caregivers. They stay home. That's what we did. Um, and now that we're changing that, it's, it's, it's hard for women. You know, during 2016, a lot of people said, oh, women can be presidents. We heard that over and over again. A woman cannot be a president. And so it's just these stereotypes. And so breaking those stereotypes becomes but very going hard. going back, to, I want to respond to that because I think that you're just, women can't, women in the United States can't be a president. In other countries, women are presidents, but not here exactly. or they're prime ministers. But so they can be, but there's something, but, and I think probably Hillary Clinton was an example of that in those uh, debates she had yeah. with Donald Trump. If she, if she was too aggressive, then she would be viewed as too aggressive and too nasty and not nice. And if she wasn't and she was like accommodating, which I think she was, then that was viewed as as weak and not being able to handle the situation or be able to debate with the with, with Trump, for instance. I think that all came out in that in those debates with Hillary and yeah, Donald Trump. Yeah, she was Trump. the most qualified. She was the and first she, lady yes. senator. She was the secretary of state. She was the most qualified candidate, but she didn't become president. Yeah, well, that's why it's um, a perfect example, because she you, you can't really uh, argue about her credentials. Uh, I mean, that, exactly. you can disagree with her politics, but you can't really argue about her credentials, and yet she couldn't be president for all the reasons. Actually, I think that you're describing here, uh, or the that we're talking about all these issues. How can you change yeah, it? Let's and, talk, yeah. And, and, you know, and brand is something that I've kind of worried about, too, how I'm perceived in the workplace. But now I've basically come to this point where 
I will just take my true authentic self to work. And if people like that authentic self, then sure, let's work together. Let's build amazing things. If you don't like this authentic leadership that I bring in, then feel free to find another job or feel free to, you know, move away from my circle. I've actually come to that point now, and I think it's taken a lot of wrangling within myself. And I don't talk about this in the book because it wasn't something that I... Everyone talks about authentic leadership and all that, but I think for me, I really had to internalize that message. So I'm I'm at this point where I will go bring my true self to work, and I will bring me. I'm not going to try to be someone else just because I have to have this persona of a, a brand that's supposed to be perceived well. And if you like that authentic leadership, fine. If you don't, then let's figure out. You can go figure you know, if you find yourself in another place where you can get leadership that you want or, you know, too bad, right? Um, yeah. So I Authenticity, I think point, auto- authenticity is the word. If you really seek the truth about yourself and what you're doing and authenticity, hey, that's it, as you say. If you don't like me, then I will go someplace else. And you said, and there are jobs out there that that uh, that you can do. But I, we didn't really, your title, at, at where where are you working now and what are you doing in terms of your, obviously, uh, you manage a team of engineers. So what specifically are you doing at that company? What I do at VMware is I run blockchain engineering for VMware. It's, it's an exciting space. It's emerging technology. It's, oh God, uh, I love going into work. I love following, uh, you know, distributed systems problems and working with uh, some of uh, just brilliant, brilliant minds. What I'm trying to do at the workplace right now is I don't have a lot of diversity. In fact, I was talking to one of the executives on my team yesterday and I said, hmm, just look around the room. We don't have diversity. I'm trying to solve that by just networking. I'm going to a lot of panels, talking about blockchain. I'm trying to meet women at these uh, these places. Um, there's another friend of mine who's very big on getting women, um, like a blockchain women panel where we just talk tech because we can talk tech. Um, and you know, trying to get some of these women. I'm trying to hire more. Uh, I'm trying to get more. Um, I'm trying to look as, as as much as I can to get more talent into, uh, especially female talent, or even diverse. Right now, it's even the men on my team, it's not a diverse team. And I'm trying to see how can I get different cultures, different backgrounds. Uh, and it's hard. It's a very hard problem to solve. Um, and uh, just looking, you know, blockchain is because it's blockchain is merging. You can't really find a lot of people in, you know, with lots of experience in that area, but anyone with distributed systems um, and security, this space, uh, you can find a lot of people, and that's the area we're getting into. Um, so that's one thing is, like, trying to build a diverse team. And my executive team is super su- supportive of that. Like, they want a diverse team, which makes my job so much more easier. So we scrutinize every hiring panel that we do. We scrutinize, you know, the job offers. We scrutinize the pay. We, you know, we scru- there's a lot more scrutiny um, in trying to, in this process. So we're trying to say, you know what, if there's unconscious bias anywhere during this process, let's try to solve that. And so that's my biggest challenge right now is hiring a diverse team. So I'm working hard on that and I'm trying to um, connect as much as I can. So I'm kind of using my network. I have a big network, so I'm trying to reach out to as many people and trying to see if that would be an effective way to get more 
uh, more diversity into my team. That's and this fantastic. is going to be a constant challenge. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. it's ongoing, I'm sure, and evolving. We have like two minutes left. So I want to repeat the title of your book, uh, Nevertheless, She Persisted, True Stories of Women Leaders in Tech, Pratima Gluckman. And also you can go to your website at pratimagluckman.com. Um, and your book, we can buy it online, bookstores everywhere, Amazon. Yes, yes, it's everywhere. Uh, Amazon's the best place. Uh, Friesen Press, which is my publisher, their website too. You can go buy the book there. Great. It's so yeah. great having you on the show today. Lots of good information, good. but yeah, and I recommend your book to all my listeners. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. <laughs> 